We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who sees us and knows us, and you know us better than we know ourselves. And you know every detail of every single person's life in this room. And you know what we need to hear and you know how we need to hear it. Father, we pray this morning that you would give to us not just human words, not just some words of inspiration, uh, but words from heaven, words from you. Uh, Would you give us ears to hear all that you have for us this morning? Would you help us to believe that none of us are in this room by accident, but we are here because you have brought us here and you desire to speak to us? And we pray that you would. We pray that you would, whether we are convinced of everything we've been singing and praying this morning or whether we are unconvinced and have all sorts of questions. Meet us where we are. Speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. That was very welcoming. Good morning. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, no worse game than playing hide and seek and nobody's looking for you. (laughs) Nothing worse than saying hello to 200 people and nobody says hello back. Uh, Last week, last week we started a new series in the book of James. 
Uh, James is this really short little book in the New Testament. It's only five chapters long, and it's a series that we're calling Living Faith because James says that there's a difference between dead faith and living faith. Dead faith is all up here. There's no real change in your life. It's just beliefs in your head. But James says living faith begins, is something that begins to work itself out into every area of your life. Here's something really interesting about this little book, if you've never read it before. There is not one single mention in the book of James of the cross or the resurrection. The two most pivotal events in the Jesus story are not mentioned a single time. Why is that? Well, it's because James, the little brother of Jesus, do you remember this from last week? We said that he's the little brother of Jesus. James knew the Jesus story perhaps better than anyone else. And that's why James is not so much about what we should believe, but it is about how we believe, how, how we should live as a result of what we believe. Let me say that again. James is not so much about what we believe, no cross, no resurrection in here. These are like the central tenets of Christianity. You take those out, Christianity falls apart. But James is not so much about what we believe, it is about how we should live as a result of what we believe. In other words, if the cross and the resurrection are true, if the gospel's true, if Christianity is true, if everything we've been singing about this morning is true, then how does it affect your life when you walk out of this building today? How does it change your life Monday through Saturday? And this is why James, it is such a practical book and it is such a challenging book because it talks about how living faith works itself out in our prayer lives and how it works itself out in our money and in our suffering and in, in, in our pursuit of justice. And today what we're going to see is how it works itself out in the way that we relate to the Bible or, or the word, as James references it throughout the verses that we read this morning. Here's, here's kind of the main point of today's sermon. Uh, it's this. If you have living faith, that is, if you have a new living relationship with God, then you will have a new living relationship with God's word. How you relate to the Bible is one of the key ways you know whether or not you have dead faith or living faith. And this passage tells us three things, actually, about how a Christian relates to the Bible. Three things. It's going to tell us something hard. It's going to tell us something surprising. And it's going to tell us something hopeful. That's where we're going this morning. Something hard, something surprising, something hopeful. Now, first, something hard. Verse 21 says, we are to humbly accept the word. So what does that mean? Think about a servant who humbles themselves before a king. The king is not subject to the servant. The servant is subject to the king. The servant doesn't have authority over the king. The king has authority over the servant. To humble yourself before something means you put its, yourself under its authority and under its power and under its control and under its influence. And James is saying... That a Christian is someone who looks at the Bible and says, I am not over the Bible, but the Bible is over me. 
The Bible is not subject to me, but I am subject to it. I don't tell it what to do, but it actually tells me what to do. That's verse 24, by the way. James says, be doers of the word. A Christian is someone who comes to the Bible and says, what does it say about my money? And what does it say about my love life? And what does it say about my career? And what does it say about my body and how I'm supposed to use it? And what does it say about how I respond to people who hurt me? What does it say about every part of my life? Now, why, this is hard. Why is this hard? It is hard because it collides with everything culture tells us. Everything that culture tells us. Modern culture says this. You know, maybe there are some helpful things in the Bible. Some helpful things about how to care for the poor or love other people or to kind of get through suffering, but it should not dictate your life. It should not be an authority over your life because you are your own authority. No one can tell you what is right or wrong. That as long as you are not, as long as you or I are not hurting anyone else, we should be able to live however we want to live. Now let me tell you, this is not a modern idea. This has been around since the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve decided to be their own authority. And it has been ingrained, it has been ingrained in every human being ever since. This, this idea of being our own authority, it is not new. And let me tell you, it's not something that has to be taught. A couple years ago, my wife was in Ikea with one of our young daughters. She was, our daughter was two at the time. They're walking around Ikea. All of a sudden, my wife realizes she has lost our daughter. In Ikea, that's kind of a scary place to lose a child. She, she, she's walking around. All of a sudden, she finds her. You know where she is? She has crawled under one of the display bed covers. She's like tucked in. It's nap time, okay, which is kind of cute and kind of funny until my wife realizes that our daughter is completely naked underneath the covers of the Ikea bed because that's how she rolled, right? That's how she, that's how she took naps. I mean, and, uh, and so, you know, what does my wife say? She says, listen, you can't take naps naked in the Ikea bed. And my two-year-old said, well, thank you, Mommy. That, I really understand what you're saying, and I, pre- I will totally do what you're asking me to know. She actually threw a total fit, starts freaking out. Now everybody in the store is looking at a naked two-year-old under the covers <laughs> in the bed. And so my wife decides that she's got to appeal to higher authorities, you know, the, the, the blue and yellow shirt people. So she goes up to an 18-year-old with my naked two-year-old daughter to say, can, can she sleep in a bed naked? She's not listening to me. Maybe she'll listen to you. But you see, here's the point, is we hate being told what to do. We, we, disdain, we disdain any authority other than our own. We think that the path to self-actualization and self-discovery is self-rule. That every person ought to be their own authority And they ought to be able to determine right or wrong for themselves. Would you think about that for just a minute? I mean, I know know, undoubtedly there are some of us in this room who are like, that is exactly how I think. And this is my problem with 
with, with religion in general or with Christianity in particular is that all of a sudden it says, no, this is, there's some sort of authoritative text that determines how you live your life and kind of runs your personal choices. But if, listen, if you disagree with that, would you think about that for just a minute? If you believe that, what, let me ask you a question. Why do you believe that? Where does that belief come from? So you might look at a religious person who believes in some sort of moral absolute authority and you think, you know, they are not, think, they are not thinking for themselves. They are just accepting what others have told them, whereas you aren't. But is that really the case? I mean, is that really the case? That you're not accepting what others have told you, but you're just thinking for yourself. You know, William Willimon, who teaches at Duke, he says this. He says, the dominant culture in which we live has been one of expressive individualism ever since the Enlightenment. People like to say what the church says may be all right for some, but I think you have to determine right or wrong for yourself. The problem is that they are not thinking for themselves. They are doing exactly what the culture tells them to do. In reality, they are espousing the very way of knowing which has been imposed on them by their culture. And a very white, western, individualistic one it is. For it assumes that there are unformed, untouched people out there. No, everyone has been deeply formed into some point of view that is not innate. And the real question you must face is, which externally imposed formation will have its way with me? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the only reason that you think people should be able to live however they want is because of the culture that you live in. Because of the authority that it has over you. Because of the influence that it has had over the way that you see ultimate reality. In other words, we are all dependent on some sort of authority outside of ourselves. We are all being shaped. The question is, what is shaping you? Which authority will be your authority? And James is saying, if you have living faith, if you have genuine faith, if you have a real relationship with the God of the Bible, then the answer to that question is the Bible. (laughs) The way that you will relate to it is you will see yourself under it. It is not subject to you, but you are subject to it. And you might think, well, but there's a lot that I don't like in the Bible. I mean, what about all of the parts that contradict how I want to live my life? Don't you see that's exactly how you know. That is exactly how you know when you're under it. Is when you come to it and you don't say, I only accept the parts that I like. But you say, I've got to deal with the parts that I don't like. I've got to submit to those too. Well, let me say this. You do not have to submit to all of the Bible to become a Christian. But the more you grow as a Christian, the more you will submit to it. The the more you will stop saying, I like this, but not that. I'll accept this, but not that. I'll obey this, but not that. Or let me put it to you this way. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you stop sifting through the Bible and the more the Bible actually starts sifting through you. And so if you're a Christian this morning, and not everyone in this room is, but if you are, 
I must ask you, and you must ask yourself, what are the parts of our lives where we are not humbly accepting God's word, where we are refusing to bend the knee, where we're just being hearers, but not doers? That's the first thing this passage teaches us. And that's, that's hard. Let me tell you, that is hard because it is saying your life is not your own. That, that, that you don't get to decide how you want to live, that someone actually, someone else, someone greater than you actually has a greater say in that. And that is hard, but here's the second thing this passage teaches us about how a Christian relates to the Bible. It teaches us something surprising The surprise comes in verse 25 when James talks about the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, what what is the perfect law that James is talking about? Because when we hear law, we think of certain parts of the Bible, right? We think of parts like the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal. We think of all the parts where God kind of lays out his laws, but James is actually thinking of something much more comprehensive when he talks about the perfect law. And he gets this, you know who he gets this from? His big brother, actually. And I'll give you just one example of this, that in John chapter 10, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Psalms are not laws. There's parts of the Old Testament where you really get kind of God's law laid out. The Psalms are not laws. The Psalms are poetry. The the Psalms are prayers, actually. But Jesus, in John 10, he quotes Psalm 82, and then, and then he says this. He says, does it not read in your law? In other words, Jesus uses the word law not just to refer to the parts of the Bible that are law, but he uses it to refer to all of the Bible, the whole thing, not just the Ten Commandments, but the Psalms and the poetry, and the prophets, and the proverbs, the whole thing. And so when James talks about the perfect law, he's talking about the Bible. And here is the surprise. Here's the great surprise of this text. He calls it, he calls the Bible the perfect law that gives freedom. Do you hear that? James says, if you rightly relate to the Bible, you'll be free. Why is that surprising? It's surprising because of everything we have said in this sermon up to this point. I mean, we just spent the whole first point talking about how the Bible takes your freedom from you. How it says you are not free to live any way that you want. I mean, isn't that the opposite of freedom? You know, and and look at this. James calls the Bible a law. See, modern people, we say... Laws do not bring freedom. Laws take freedom. Freedom is the absence of laws. It is the absence of constraints and of moral absolutes. It means no restrictions, no boundaries on my personal choices and actions. To quote the great philosopher Princess Elsa, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Isn't that what it means to be free? Isn't that what it means to be free? The world says yes, but James says no. 
The world says freedom is the absence of laws, but James says freedom is learning to live under the perfect law. And not only does James say this, but Jesus says this. Listen to this from John chapter 8, verse 31. He says, if you hold to my teaching, that means if you, if you obey my commands, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says the way to be free is to obey his commands. And that is the exact, see, that's the great surprise. That's the exact opposite of how modern culture defines freedom. The modern view of freedom says that freedom is found in no laws, no constraints. Jesus says it's actually found in his laws and in his constraints. Modern view says freedom comes from obeying no one other than yourself. But Jesus says it comes from obeying God and his perfect word. Now here's the question. Who is right? Who are you going to believe? Which of those are you going to lean into? Who is right? Now James, knowing that that's the question we should be asking, gives us several examples of why Jesus is right in this passage. Here's the first one. Forgiveness. Look at verse 20. James says that anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is talking about forgiveness. God commands us to forgive people who wrong us. We actually pray this every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God commands this. Now what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you hold a grudge? Some, some of us in this room, we are, we, we, are, it's, we are doing that right now. We have been hurt, we have been wronged, and we are refusing to forgive the other person. What is it doing? Who is it hurting? It's hurting you, actually. Christian writer Anne Lamont says it this way. She says, not forgiving someone is like taking rat poison and expecting the rat to die. See, you, you want your anger to hurt the other person, but it's actually hurting you. It's undoing you. And you know what? You're not free. You're not free because you were enslaved to bitterness and to resentment, and you were consumed by anger. Here's a second example. Living in others-centered life, an others-centered ethic. Look at verse 27. It says that we are to look after widows and orphans in their distress. Now, this is, not, this is not an exhaustive list. This is shorthand for those who are marginalized, for those who are oppressed, for those who are vulnerable. And you know what God commands us to do? He commands us if you are a Christian, he commands you to use your resources to help people who are in need. Now, what happens when you say, no, thank you? Because life is about me. It's actually not about giving. It's about getting. It's about getting as much as I can, spending as much as I can, saving as much as I can. What happens? What happens when you do that? Here's what happens. It hurts you. 
it distorts you. you. You become a shallow person. And you're not free. You're enslaved to money. And you're enslaved to comfort. And you're enslaved to security. And you're, you're enslaved to making your life as easy as you possibly can. You're not free. Here's the third example. Holiness. Not a popular word these days. Verse 27 says... James says, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. God commands us to, to, he commands us to be holy as he is holy, actually. That's what the New Testament says. He commands us to pursue holiness with our minds and with our bodies. And he commands us to be different, to be set apart, to, to submit our unholy desires to his holy desires. But so often we think, If I do that, if I pursue holiness, then I will not be happy. You know, have you ever thought if I really hand over my life to God, if I really submit my desires to him, if I let him decide how I'm going to live rather than me deciding how I'm going to live, then I am going to miss out. You ever thought that? Let me tell you, there are a lot of people in this room who can tell you from personal experience, and I am one of them. That living however you want to live can bring a lot of pain and tragedy into your life. And it can actually scar you. And it can hurt you deeply. And it can hurt people around you deeply. And not only that, but living however you want means that you are not truly free. (laughs) No, you're enslaved to your desires. They control you. They, They master you. They dictate how you live. You see, here is James's point in all three of these. His point is this. Real freedom is not the absence of laws. It is learning to live under God's perfect law. John Stott writes about it this way. He says, true freedom is to be one's true self. But my true self is made for loving. And loving is self-giving. So in order to be myself, I have to deny myself and give myself. In order then to be free, I have to give up my freedom. In order then to live, I have to die to my self-centeredness. In order to find myself, I've got to lose myself. Real freedom is not doing what we most want to do. Real freedom is knowing which of the things we most want to do is siding with what we were designed for. Real freedom, says Stott, is finding the right restrictions. And the right restrictions are the ones that God has established in his infinite wisdom and he has revealed to us in his perfect word. There's a story of a Russian priest back in the, the, the late 19th century, the 1880s. The world, his name was Father John. And the world of the czars had collapsed. And things were a mess. Depression was rampant. Poverty was rampant. Addiction was rampant. And Father John would go out into the streets at all hours of the night and he would, he, would, he, would, he would grab the drunks who were in the gutter 
and the prostitutes who were standing on the street corners, and he would grab them, and face to face he would say, child, this is not what you were created for. Leave this and walk in the freedom that God made you for. Where is God saying that to you about your life this morning? If you think that that story is just for drunks and prostitutes, friends, you do not know yourself. Because what Jesus is doing in this text is he wants to grab all of us and in the most loving, gentle, kind way possible, look at you face to face and say, this is not what you were made for. Walk in the freedom that your good father has made you to live in. Because God's word is not his attempt to ruin your life. It is his gracious gift to keep you from ruining your life. Because when you move against his word, you actually move against yourself. See, life, it is never better without God's word. And it is never poorer with it. His commands are always for our good and they are always for our liberation. And that brings us to the last point. This passage tells us something hard, really hard about how a Christian relates to the Bible. That we submit ourselves under its authority. Then it tells us something really surprising about how a Christian relates to the Bible, and that is that in submitting to its authority, we actually find real freedom. But then it tells us something hopeful. And let me tell you, I was writing this sermon this week, and I got to this point, and I thought, I need some good news. So are you feeling that right now? Do you need some good news? You know, if we just stopped right here, we would all be in a world of trouble. Look again at verse 25. James says, but whoever looks intently, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James says we are to look intently into God's word. Now that word intently, it's an interesting word, that word intently. It's the same word to use to describe the disciple Peter in Luke chapter 24 when he goes into the empty tomb, when he looks into the empty tomb. Can you imagine what that look must have been like? Can you imagine how thorough Peter must have looked around that tomb? Not seeing the body. You know, it's not like he just looked into the empty tomb and then looked away. No, he looked and he looked and he looked. He was noticing every detail. And that is, James is saying, that's actually how we're to read the Bible and to look at the Bible and not just to read it or to look at it, but verse 25 says that's how we're to do it. And that's why we're all in a world of trouble if we stopped. Because the more intently you look into the word, the more you realize how you haven't done the word. Have you ever felt that? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says that the word of God, the Bible, is living and active. It says that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes 
of the heart. The Bible is like a sword. When you read it, it cuts you open. In fact, the more you read it, the, the, the more exposed you feel, the more you realize how short you fall, the more you realize how much you do not do the word. And this is why some of us hate reading the Bible. You just hate it. Because every time you read it, you feel worse about yourself. It, it, just, it just kind of heaps on the shame and the guilt. Because the more you look at the Bible, the more you look at yourself and your own failure. Friends, here is the good news. It is not enough to just look at the Bible. And it is not enough to just look at yourself. You have to look at something else. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great Baptist preacher years ago uh, in the UK, he, he tells a story of how he became a Christian as a teenager. He was in a season of spiritual seeking, asking questions about spiritual reality, and so he started visiting churches. And one Sunday in January of 1850, there was this massive snowstorm. So he had to find a church close to his house. He ended up in this little Methodist church right around the corner he'd never been before. There were 12 people there that day. Not even the pastor could make it because of the snowstorm. They had to ask one of, the, one of the people in the congregation to get up and give the sermon. I was going to do that this morning, but you'd probably never come back to this church if we did that again. They had to ask somebody from the congregation to get up and give the sermon. It was this simple shoemaker. He stands up, nothing prepared. He opens the Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ends of the earth. Look unto me. And then the man began to preach. And Spurgeon writes this. He says, this is how the sermon went. My dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says to be saved, we only need to look. It's not lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. You needn't have gone to college to look. Even a child can look. You needn't be, a worth, you needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Ah, but the text says, look to me. Look to Jesus. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. And Spurgeon writes, then the good man lifted his arms to the heavens and began to cry out. The Lord says, look unto me, I am sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. Spurgeon says, and after the man had gone on for a few minutes, he noticed me as a visitor in the back, and he fixed his eyes on me, and he said, young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey this text. Young man, look. Look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, the blow struck home, and I saw it at once. I had been waiting to do 50 things to find God. Do you hear that? He says, I had been waiting to do 50 things to find God. But when I heard that word, look, the cloud was gone. And so I looked and looked and looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. 
Do not look at yourself. Do not look at yourself. You look at Jesus. And that's why God invites us to this table. Week after week after week. So that we would look not at ourselves, but that we would look at him. He is the only one. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly done the word. Who has perfectly submitted and obeyed every single time. He is the only one who truly said to God the Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Do not look at what you haven't done. You will be in despair. The invitation of this table is to look at what Christ has done because he has done it all for you and for me. And you know what happens? When when you see him perfectly living God's word for you, you know what happens? You start to experience real freedom in your life. You're, You're free to obey. Not so that God will love you, but because he loves you. And you are free to finally become the person that God made you to be. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for all that you have done for us. That the invitation of this table is not for those who have, who have been perfect, who have gotten it just right, who have pulled our lives together, but it, we, it is for people who, are, who know that they are broken and in desperate need. People who have strayed from you, who have turned away from you, people who have sought to live our own way, and yet we are invited this morning because Jesus has done it for us. And so we look to him. We thank you that he has made this meal possible, and he's made it possible for us to come to it this morning. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts with living faith as we eat and drink together today. In Christ's name, amen.